Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm here to answer any of your mental health questions. And I know you guys love Roxy and a little bit of updates on her. She's too cute. Shauna's teaching her to shake right now, and I can see her doing the paw. But whenever I get dressed up, she assumes that I'm leaving the house. But today she was confused because I still have my pajama pants on below. And so she was like sniffing the shirt. She's like, wait, what? And then she sniffed the pants and then she laid down. She's like, I think mom's staying home. It was funny because she's right. Uh, it's it's the filming, Katie. <laughs> and she's just getting used to it. Anyway, funny girl. And just a minute ago, she was like on my lap because she's decided she's a lap dog, even though she's like 40 pounds already. And she thought because I was talking, she couldn't just be at my feet. She needed to be like on my lap. So anyway, Sean's taking care of her right now. <laughs> okay. If any of you are new, welcome. I asked for the questions for this podcast over on my podcast channel. So all of my podcasts are actually posted to my main channel. They're just in the playlists there, but you can just look for Ask Katie Anything or go to the Opinions That Don't Matter uh, channel. That's where these are housed. And in the community tab on Sundays, I ask you for your questions. And so you can place them there. But without further ado, let's jump into our first question because it has, it's really long. It's got a lot of follow-up questions and comments. A lot of these are long. So we have nine that we're going to get through today. You ready? Let's just dive in. First question says, Hey Katie, if you are taught growing up that your feelings are not valid, so many of us were taught that, how do you start to feel okay feeling the feelings? Good question. Throughout my childhood and as I grew up, I was consistently told that I was just being too sensitive or overreacting or whatever happened was not worth getting upset over. Don't you hate that when they're like, it's not worth getting upset over? If I'm upset, it's worth getting upset over. Ugh. Anyway. And when I told them things going on in my life and how I was feeling, they straight up told me, oh, I know you don't actually feel that way or that I was stupid for feeling that way. Now, as an adult, I find myself with so much shame or guilt around feelings and I don't know how to change this. Now, this is a great question. Like I said, there's a ton of comments and questions on top of this because this is so very common. Um, and maybe this is something that we make into like a video on the main channel, like either it's a short or a full length video. Let me know in those comments if you think I should. So first of all, what happened to you was gaslighting, like saying that you don't actually feel that way or that you're stupid for feeling that way. That's manipulation and abuse, but the, that you don't actually feel that way. That's a form of gaslighting. And if anybody wonders what gaslighting is, it's when someone manipulates us in order to get us to question our own sanity or to allow us to be more manipulated. It's like uh, gaslighting is when someone tells us that the way we remember something or how we felt about something 
isn't correct that like we don't know like that we it, it, it kind of their hope is to make us think that we're losing our minds and that you know we can't trust our own memory or our own recall of an event or even how we really feel and so anyways just wanted to put that out there because my when i read this when i was prepping these questions i was like ugh, that sounds a lot like gaslighting now the main question here is really how do we change this how do we start feeling or actually feeling okay with feeling the feelings and first of all I think a lot of it is going to come from healing in therapy. And what I mean by healing in therapy is you were traumatized. You were clearly abused emotionally at the very least from your parents or your family for, you know, you said, you know, all throughout childhood and as you grew up. So I'd assume until you moved out, if you have moved out. And so we're going to need to see a trauma therapist or trauma specialist in your area, or even to be honest, even just someone who understands trauma we feel connected with that we can actually you know work with them we feel like they hear us and see us and all that good stuff we're going to want to see a therapist so that we can work on healing from the trauma and work on changing the narrative and when, when i say changing the narrative it's like we've been told this story all throughout childhood so much so that we tell it to ourselves and that story is that i don't have a right to feel the way i feel and how i feel isn't right or valid, or I'm being too sensitive, right? We have this story we've been telling ourselves because for so many years when we were developing, that's what our family told us. And so we've started to believe it and take on the story as our own. Does that make sense? I hope so. So in therapy, we have to change that story or narrative. A story is really just a narrative, just another word for the same thing. So if we need to work to change that story, how are we going to do that? And the first thing is honestly just identifying what, oop, I hit the microphone, sorry. Identifying what that story is, checking the facts, like, okay, what's really true? What do we actually know? Are we overreacting? If someone else in our life reacted this way, would we think that they're overreacting? We just think that that's normal. Has anyone else ever told us that we're too sensitive? You know, let's start looking into it. And yes, I know we may have some evidence to support some of these thoughts or beliefs, but that doesn't mean the whole narrative is true. And so we want to check those facts. We want to challenge ourselves to think in different ways, meaning using those bridge statements so that we're not just shit talking ourselves saying that, oh, I, I do overreact. I am too sensitive. What if instead we said something like, I'm open to the belief that maybe I'm not as sensitive as my family led me to believe, or I'm open to the fact that maybe my reactions aren't complete overreactions. Maybe it's just mm, pa like partially an overreaction, right? You just have to be open to thinking some, a different way. And doing those two things, right? Noticing the thoughts and beliefs we have and kind of challenging those and checking our facts, we're going to be able to put together a more moderate narrative, meaning it's not positive. I don't believe that like everybody has this wonderful, amazing belief about themselves at all times. And it's not my goal necessarily to get everybody to that point, but I just don't want you to shit talk yourself all the time because I know that that does more harm than good. It doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us stronger. It just makes us more upset and hurtful to ourselves and others and just detrimental to our mental health. And so we're just looking to change that story into a more neutral space. Ideally, we want to have a little self-love and move into that positive space at some point. But again, it's not always the ultimate goal. We just want to at least get to the neutral spot. And so I think working on that in therapy, little by little, day by day, paying attention to what we're saying, checking our facts and stuff like that will help us be more accepting of our experience, which leads me into how we could 
become okay with feeling the feelings. And you maybe could jump to this step, but I find I get a lot of resistance, like a lot of defense mechanisms pop up, pop up with my patients if I do this too quickly, but you, you do what's best for you, right? Everybody at their own pace. So the second step is when we would start trying to identify and acknowledge the feelings. And so you guys know, I love the feelings. We'll go to the feel, go, I think it's just feelingswheel.com, I think. And it's just a big circle. You can print it out. It's got beautiful colors on it. If you can print it in color, save it onto your phone. And I want you to each day, try to come up with one feeling for a week, one feeling each day that you experience. Okay. Might be really easy. might be really hard. We're going to try to work up to identifying five each day, but slowly but surely each week, let's just try to increase by one. Okay. Identify those feelings. Okay. This is the feeling. Then I want you to pick, since we're only doing one this first week, just pick one. Once we move up to more than two, try to do this for two of them. Okay. We're going to pick one of those feelings and I hope you guys are following. So let's say my feeling is anger. I'm going to pick that feeling and I'm going to write it down. And then I'm going to describe it to myself without using the word angry. So how does anger feel to me? Okay. I'm going to describe it. So if people didn't know, I would tell them that anger feels like hot lava in my stomach and rising up my throat and it makes my muscles clench and all I want to do is scream. Okay. That's how anger feels to me. So I've described it. Then I want you to tell yourself why you feel this way. And this has to be a validating statement. And so for me, let's say, I don't know, let's, uh, let's say someone let me down, like I got into an argument with a friend and they didn't show up for me in the way they were supposed to. Okay. Let's just pretend that that's going on in my life. Then I would say, I've identified my emotion today, the feeling, my feeling is anger. Anger feels like what I just told you. And I feel angry because my friend let me down and didn't show up for me in the way that I needed her to. And so I'm angry with her and then also angry with myself because, you know, I decided to have this friend. Okay. That's it. That's your homework. And try doing this. I mean, I know I said every day, but let's give you a couple of days off. Let's do at least at least four to five days a week. Okay. And what this does, and I know it's slow going and it's like, but Katie, I just really wanted to like be more accepting. You'll get there. We've been invalidating our emotions so much so that we don't even feel like they exist. We've stuffed them so deep, deep, deep into our belly that we're like, Mm-mm, I don't ever have feelings. I don't like feelings. The feelings I have are not warranted. They're overreactions. I'm too sensitive, right? We have that old narrative that we've been just like have on repeat constantly. It's going to take some time for us to acknowledge the emotions and know that we have every right to feel them. And by doing this practice, we will get there. It's slow going. Yes, but I promise it will give you the right result and help you feel better. And there were comments on this, a shit ton of comments. And this first one says, yes. Also, how can I accept that I'm still struggling with relatively minor things? Look at that judgment that happened in the past. While I have friends who are hyper resilient and have been through so much worse, but have processed it and moved on. It feels like proof that people who said I was too sensitive and needed to be more resilient were right. And that the fact I'm struggling despite not having had that much bad stuff happen proves that something's wrong with me as a person. Is there any way to not feel guilty or invalid for struggling? Yes. Also, that's so shame filled and so much judgment. Every person is going to be different. And I guess a good way to remind yourself about this is to consider different face shapes. Okay. I have a couple of options that I use for this. One is like uh, my 
my yoga teacher, Brian Kest, who I've loved and, and went to his studio for years and years till he closed it. He used to say, um, you know, reach out towards your toes. And if you touch them, don't feel good about it. Don't think you're better than other people. He's like, just means your hamstrings are longer. Um, and he's like, you know, you look at people's noses, which gets me to the faces. And he's like, you don't look at someone with a longer nose and be like, ooh, they're much more healthy or so much more fit than me. And he's like, why do we do that for hamstrings? And I don't know if you guys are following me, but I always loved that analogy. And so with this, I want you to notice when you're judging yourself, because comparison is the thief of joy, right? We're looking out thinking, I'm not doing shit. I'm not good enough. They're so much better. Why am I still struggling, right? We're just invalidating, invalidating, judging, judging, judging. And I want you to consider people's face shapes. Some people have rounder cheeks. Some people have bonier cheeks. Some people have fuller lips, thinner lips, bigger chins, smaller chins, bigger noses, smaller noses, bushier eyebrows, thinner eyebrows, right? We can really get into it and look at your friends. And I know this sounds kind of silly, but this helps. This helps me sometimes. They're so different than you, even when it comes to just the way their face is made up, right? Just the structure of a person. So different, right? Look at someone's hands. My hands look just like my mom's. Oh, by the way, this, if you're just, uh, if you're watching, you've seen this little bandaid on my wrist. It's Roxy who was uh, playing a little rough. Um, my hands look just like my mother's, but it's just funny if you look at someone's hands comparing your hands to their hands, so different. Therefore, why would we think that our ability to weather life storms would be any different or be the same? I mean, why would we think that we would do things just the same as them? We're so different. Everything about us is different. And we're all born, unfortunately or fortunately, with a certain amount of resilience. And some of us has to have to work harder for that resilience than others. Does that suck? Yeah. But are some people's hamstrings shorter and they can't touch their toes? Yeah. Some people have really big noses that they, that they don't like. Yeah. Do some people have, you know, really uh, prominent chins that they love? Yeah. I mean, people, it just is what it is. We're all different. And instead of looking out and comparing and saying, but they, you know, have things that aren't as bad as mine, why are they doing so well? Instead of doing that, let's look in and say, you know, I had this, this stuff happen to me. These things that were hurtful. I don't want you to say minor or major. I don't want us weighing whose trauma's worse. It's not like pie. There's not like a, a limited amount and you taking your pain means that other people don't have the same amount, right? And we don't need to look and say theirs was worse than ours. We're experiencing what happened to us. We're trying to process it through. And I want you, instead of competing with them, I want you to compete with yourself. How are we doing today based on how we were doing yesterday? That's the only competition that I want you or only comparison I allow you to draw. But pay attention to that. Notice how different you are from other people and why comparing yourself is just an effort and futility. It doesn't give us anything positive, right? Notice that and notice their faces. Maybe that'll just remind you next time. You'll be like, yeah, that's so different. Her eyebrows are a totally different shape than mine or her hair is so different, right? I know this sounds silly. But sometimes it just helps to remind us just how different we are and why we cannot be measured by this one measuring tool called resilience or uh, work in therapy, right? We're multifaceted people and we're not going to all be able to do things at the same pace or in the same way. And some of us just are naturally born with more of something or less of something than others. And so pay attention to those differences. And I know people might be like, aren't we supposed to pay attention to how much we're alike? We are a lot alike, but we're also very different and unique. And that's what makes us wonderful. That's what makes us who we are. And instead of looking out 
and thinking they're doing so much better. Why am I having such a tough time? I want you to say, am I doing better than I was yesterday? Is there something that I can do today to help me feel as good, if not better than yesterday? Or can I use a little bit more of my self-care tools than I did yesterday? We can do that. And if yesterday's too far, let's do this day, like this morning versus this afternoon, like every couple of hours or so, like four hours away. Can we do that? Maybe that will help. I think that, that that helps sometimes. So, and you can try to thought stop and stuff like that, but I really think it's more to do with this, like assuming everything's better for them because of this and, you know, and comparing ourselves to someone that's not us. Okay. Next question says, I have been in a similar yet different situation. My parents were never open to talking about feelings and taboo topics. And throughout my childhood, I was sexually assaulted more than once. I'm so sorry. My mom would actually ask if I was okay. And I said I was because I didn't understand the severity of what had happened. As the days went by, none of these occasions were brought up and it's like the situation never existed. Oh, they should have brought up more than once. Parents often don't know how to deal with this stuff. Um, As the days went by, Oh, sorry. I already read that. I blamed myself for over 20 years and still struggle to talk about this in therapy. Any advice on how to overcome this? Can you write about it or record yourself in a video format? Can we do that? That's always what I encourage people to do. If we struggle to say things out loud and put words to it, can we do it in poetry? Can we pick out, you know, some language and write like a letter to our therapist or to our younger self when this happened? Can we write you know, a letter, maybe that helps writing it out. And then the great thing is when we feel ready at your own pace, we can give that letter or that journal entry or whatever, maybe it's just a poem even to our therapist. And that can help them learn about this and know to bring it up. Because the thing is, is if we've, if we've only had it brought up once and we said, no, we're fine. As most people do, you need to be asked a lot of times. Usually like in my experience, even if a patient is like struggling with suicidal thoughts, if I ask them about them, some will, some will say it straight up, but a lot of times it takes like three times asking or so. So I keep asking, even within a session, I'll ask the beginning, I'll ask uh, during the session and at the end, just to check, because sometimes we need to know that it's okay. And we need to be asked a few times to kind of come to terms with what our answer is and what's really going on. And it sounds like your parents just really didn't know how to deal with it because they are clearly not open to talking about their own feelings or anything. And this was like, oh, they just didn't know how to talk to you about it. Um, And so to circumvent this defense mechanism of, oh, we don't, we don't talk about those things, shut it down, stuff it down, push it away. We have to find a new way to give you that outlet that you so desperately need. And I think journaling is a great way to do that. And again, it can be like an email form. It can be a journal. It can be a letter to a younger self when it happened. It can be a letter from our younger self to us now. It could be a poem. Any way of kind of getting it out is is going to be really helpful. And then it also gives you some things that you can show your therapist so that they can know what happened and maybe ask questions and know to take it to that place to help you work through that, you know, when, when you when you're ready and they can continue to bring it up so that you don't have to. That's something as a therapist, I'm happy to do all the time is be the one that brings things up. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. Um, The next question says, along those lines, I was the youngest. So when my opinion wasn't completely ignored, I was being disrespectful if angry or dramatic if I was hurt. How do I relearn how to identify my own feelings? I think this is 
essentially kind of the way I answered that first part of the question where I talked about like the feelings wheel and trying to put language to how we feel and putting is putting a little sentence together and then validating it with why, why we feel that way. Um, and it doesn't have to be like, we have to have a real direct reason. You could say something like, I feel exhausted, but I slept well. So I don't really know why, but I just know that my body and brain are telling me to, to rest. That's more validating than I'm a lazy sack of shit and I should be doing something. I don't know why I feel this way. Right. You can see where I'm going with this. But so anyways, this person essentially, their old narrative is that they're disrespectful if they're angry or dramatic, if they're hurt, how do we relearn? I I think in this, for this specific question, I want you to take the word disrespectful and the word dramatic, and I want you to define them for me. And this might take a few tries. You might have a few different definitions that you want to try to try out until you come up with the one that works for you. But I want you to define those for me and how you think they feel and what you think they look like. And it could be, I'd even be fine if if you struggle to come up with one, have one just called old narrative, where you write out what you were told that means, right? Like if you get angry, you're disrespectful. So disrespect is anger, right? Even though we know that's not true. And you can work with your therapist to come up with a new, more more correct. I, I'm, I was trying to fish for a better word, but it's like more accurate description of those terms. And I really think that's the place to start. And if you don't even know how you're feeling and like identifying feelings is too hard, can we just pick a feeling that we're kind of attracted to in that feelings wheel for whatever reason, maybe the word or the feelings word is like, I feel um, overwhelmed. Okay. What, what attracted you to that word? So then we're answering that question. What attracted you to it? So use that feelings wheel, pick some feelings out, even if you don't know if you identify with them, just ones that kind of call to you. You know, we all have those where you're like, that's a fun word. That's interesting. Yeah. I like that. And then tell me what that looks like. Tell me what that would feel like. And we'll learn slowly, but surely about our feelings, about each feeling. And I'd keep this record, like keep a list of them in the descriptions, because sometimes maybe then in the future, if we're feeling some kind of way, but we don't know what to call it, we can look through our descriptions and we can pick one that's accurate. Does that make sense? I know that sounds super tedious, but that's why the feelings wheel is great because it gives you like a limited amount and you can just do them ring by ring. You can start with that middle ring and just do those ones for a while, then move out. Cause I know that last ring has like a lot of different feelings words but that just allows us to slowly get to know our feelings and identify the ones that we're experiencing. Okay, now somebody left, this is the final follow-up and it says follow-up question along the same lines, but what if your feelings were kind of acknowledged, but you were told that you just got to push on and not let it knock you down? Pretty much always being told to toughen up. I don't really think that you're, yeah, they weren't, I guess they were kind of acknowledged. They were acknowledged like, yes, I know. I noticed that you're feeling a feeling, but don't feel it essentially stop right now. Um, so now that when similar feelings are even begin to surface, it's that instant want to push them down and not show weakness. How do I, how do you push past that? That's a great question. And again, it's not really about the pushing past it that I'd be so interested in. It's more in the, like the journaling. I know guys love a journal prompt, but it's in the journaling about what it would mean to be tough and what it would mean to be weak and what it would mean to allow yourself to feel the way you feel without doing the like, push it down, suck it up, you know, toughen up, just do this thing. Um, yeah, and I might even have you define like weakness and strength and what that looks like for you. 
or people that you think are strong or people that you think are weak and why. I think there's a lot of potential like homework slash journal prompts in here. So first, okay, so let's, let me break this down a little bit more clearly because I'm kind of just, as they're coming into my head, I'm spouting them out. So what does weakness mean to you? Define it. And what does strength mean to you? And mean and look, you know, what, like if you were to try to explain it to me, like I've never spoken the English language and I don't understand this word, how would you tell me what it means? Okay. And then on that same vein, who's a person that you think is strong and why? Who's a person you think is weak and why? And then I think, again, going back to what I've said before, I'd want you to start identifying your own feelings a little bit and give, offering yourself those validating statements. That's like at the beginning, that first part of the question that I answered. I think that that would really benefit you and that could help you slowly stop pushing them down. Again, like I said, we can't just go right for the symptom, right? The pushing down and the toughen up kind of thing. We have to figure out where it's coming from. And that's kind of like in those definitions and in the Oh, my nose is itching. And then the feelings wheel with some descriptors and a validating statement. And slowly but surely, we will learn that that how we feel is valid. And that will allow us to, to feel them without getting that knee-jerk reaction. Stuff it down, shut it down, you know. Um, and that's really kind of the, the way I would go about it. You could even notice if there's certain triggers, that would be a question I'd probably have for you. If you're in my office, I would say, are there certain feelings that seem off limits that make us want to stuff it down more than others? And then we'd work on the ones that aren't as triggering first and then move into the others. So um, that could be something to kind of dive into and consider. But yeah, overall, I hope that that helps. I hope that helps you push past that essentially what feels like a knee-jerk reaction and learn, like relearn how to acknowledge how you're feeling and validate that. Okay. That was just question number one. (laughs) Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. I just started therapy to work through physical and sexual abuse and was diagnosed with PTSD. I'm so glad you started therapy. My therapist has pointed out with compassion that I'm very ambivalent. I didn't think this was necessarily bad until I looked it up and saw that it can be a predictor of failed therapy. Mm. We'll get into that. I'm going to bring this up in my next session, but I think it's interesting that I've never seen anything on YouTube or heard of this issue of ambivalence in therapy. Can you explain this a little? How can I not let this prevent me from progressing? It's so hard. Thank you for your help. Now, ambivalence in therapy, I actually think there's a place for it. People can disagree, but ambivalence, if anybody doesn't really know what we're talking about is when we just don't, it's not that we don't care. We just don't even know if we care or don't care. We're just ambivalent. I don't even know what the real definition is. Let me just look that up really quick here. Um, so ambivalent is defined as having mixed feelings or contradictory ideas about something or someone. Like she loved, uh, some loved her, some hated her, a few are ambivalent about her, right? Like you're mixed, you have mixed feelings. And I I thought it was a little bit more like not having any, like, but ambivalent is more conflicted, okay? And so if we're feeling conflicted, I don't really see why why that's a bad thing. I would have questions about it. I would encourage you to do some like deeper dive inner work about your ambivalence and like where you think it comes from because part of me wonders if if this is born out of your PTSD and it's a protective, it's actually a defense mechanism for us to be ambivalent or be mixed and not really know which way to go. It's almost like 
because of the PTSD, we we've learned to maybe not trust ourselves that much, right? I've talked about this. I don't know if it's in a video, but I definitely, I know it's in my new book, Traumatized, which I have right here, actually. Um, it's available now if you're interested, but I talk about it in that book. And I think in other videos as well about how PTSD can, especially if we have complex PTSD, if we've had multiple traumas in our life, we we can like think that we don't know how to make good decisions for ourselves. And we can worry that because this has happened over and over, that we're doing something to cause it, right? And in that causes, because of that belief, uh, like, I don't know if I can trust myself to make good decisions. So because of that, then we can look out at other people and be like, maybe they could make a better decision, right? And we can let other people decide for us or at least give us their input and we can feel conflicted or ambivalent about decisions and choices we make in life and things that we're doing. And I could see that working its way into therapy in the way that it's doing for you. Now, I don't, I just don't think ambivalent is like a bad thing. I would be curious about where it's coming from for you and why we think it's there. Like what are your conflicted thoughts? Or if you feel like you like just don't know at all, like what, what do we think? So if I was to ask you about your traumas and why you reached out for therapy, what would you have to say? And when I asked you like, you know, so therapy seemed like a good idea. Can you tell me how you came to that decision, right? We can kind of dig into the reasons that you you reached out and you're doing this work and you're trying to work through your traumas. Like what got you here? Because my my guess is that we don't like the way we feel currently, that the PTSD symptoms are just unbearable. The the flashbacks have, you know, taken over our dreams or whatever, right? There's going to be reasons that we reached out and nothing about that is actually ambivalent. We can be ambivalent about what happened to us. Like, I don't even know what to think about what happened because I'm so shame-filled. I think that maybe I caused some of that to happen and I'm so guilt-ridden that I'm pretty sure I did something to make it happen, right? We can have these mixed emotions and there's nothing wrong with feeling a little mixed. There's nothing wrong with not really knowing how to think or feel about something terrible that happened. I think in I don't think, I don't think it's bad. Um, I would talk to your therapist about it and see if they think it's bad. Cause I would never have thought that that would have been a predictor of therapy, not working. I would have thought instead that it's more that like, we kind of need to dig into where this is coming from and see if this is a wave is a defense mechanism for you. Or if it is just because we feel so overwhelmed, we go into that zone. Like I'd want to know where it's coming from. And if, if we, in fact, think and feel that way, or if we're just doing that because we don't really know how else to react or respond to our life. Does that make sense? And so overall, what I would say, bring it up with your therapist and talk about it and figure out where it's coming from. And maybe there's a pattern. Have we been doing this for a, for a long time in a lot of different parts of our lives? And once we kind of, you know, we know more, if we know where it came from or when it started, that can tell us a lot. But also, I would just question whether or not we really are ambivalent or what has led to that ambivalence. Is it linked to our PTSD? Do we think it's just linked to our overwhelm? Tell me about it, write about it. And I think the more we kind of dig in and even just asking your therapist straight up, if they think that this is going to be, you know, going to cause or lead to failed therapy, we need to know that. We need to talk about that and figure that out. But all in all, I don't think it's bad. I think ambivalence is just when we just don't even know how to feel, which is very common for especially for my trauma patients, super common. We can feel all, we can feel everything and nothing simultaneously. And so of course you'd feel ambivalent. Um, and then 
going back to what I said in that first question, I think some of those feelings wheels and writing them out and validating them, I think that work could help you as well. It could help you kind of understand that ambivalence come out of it, identify more emotions and things that you're experiencing. Um, And I think that that would be that emotional intelligence will go a long way in your recovery. Okay. And there was a comment on this and says, and how do you deal with feeling ambivalence when dating after being sexually abused as a child? Most likely from different people. I started dating a girl recently and we really connected at first. I felt really safe and relaxed in her presence when talking or holding her hand, even though I didn't know her for that long. But then we moved pretty quickly. And after we had had sex, I had a panic attack and I didn't feel safe in her presence anymore. I realized that even though I wanted it to happen in the moment and it was consensual, I had crossed my boundaries subconsciously. I explained a little to her afterwards what had happened and I wanted to take things slowly even though I wanted it in the moment. She reacted kind of great and was very understanding, but somehow we still ended up in bed together a few days later. She explicitly asked for consent before, which is great. And I know now looking back in hindsight that I consciously knew it would be harmful to me and I wasn't ready, but I still said yes, because I also wanted it. After that, it was a little awkward having to repeat myself and drawing some boundaries after willingly overstepping them myself. She said that she was okay with that, but she got confused. She got, uh, she was kind of confused and I get that as I'm sending mixed signals. Yes, but it's okay. We'll dig into this. Things are good between us now, but I don't feel that sense of safety and comfort with her anymore. Hmm. I, I know I'm not ready for sex or being more intimate and that's fine, but how do you know if you're ready for a relationship in general? I've been unstable for the last two, three years and for for the last two or three years and for the last few months, it's gotten worse. Gotcha. Even though I'm feeling better now, I'm just not fine. So this is probably not a good idea. Can you date when you just started to slowly dive into your trauma? What should I do? I'm not looking for something casual either, aiming at a relationship at some point or not. Okay. This is a great question. And sex is going to be complicated or I don't even, I mean, yes, it's sex, but it's also like physical intimacy can be really complicated when we're healing from a sexual trauma. Now it's hard in general, but it's especially hard when we first are diving into it. We can kind of, uh, because we're super triggered, right? And we don't, we haven't been using our resources or our coping skills that frequently. So it's like, we're kind of raw for a little period of time. We need to be extra protective of ourselves, which is why I would argue this was so hard and painful for you is because you were super raw and not ready but phys- that's the thing is like people don't, a lot of people don't understand the difference between like emotional, emotionally wanting something or being ready for something and physically wanting or being ready for something because physically we can want and be ready for sex. Like that could happen all the time. Whereas emotionally it might not work out that way, right? We might emotionally be disconnected or emotionally feel overwhelmed or frazzled or whatever, shut down, right? Or super vulnerable. And that disconnect can cause situations like this. And I'm sorry, but I'm glad you're communicating with, um, with the girl that you're dating. I'm glad you're telling her like, you know, what happened and kind of why. And I guess a couple things first is you can date when you're slowly diving into your trauma. I, I just don't recommend it. I don't think people have to break up or, Oh, you should never date, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I would argue that when we're in that vulnerable position, it's easier for us to not be dating someone and it will be healthier overall because when we we're feeling better and more like ourselves or learning who we are, you know, outside of the trauma, then we'll be able to pick someone who's, who's 
better for us than potentially what we could be doing. I'm not saying that you're doing this. I'm just saying this is a potential risk is that if we haven't really processed through our trauma, we could still be engaging in unhealthy and toxic relationships without realizing it, you know, purposely picking out people that remind us of our abuser or one of our, you know, let's say a a parent that we never really got along with, we can purposely pick out people who remind us of them because that's comfortable, right? And we're used to that. And so in order for us to like not pick that person that's just like our mom or dad or whatever, um, we might need a little space in between us and the trauma work and trying to find someone to date. I hope that makes sense. And so overall you can date, but I just don't recommend it. I don't think it's that great. And when it comes to this and like what you should do, keep talking to her about it. Make sure just if if we're wanting to continue this relationship, we need to make sure that she understands that it we and we have to take ownership. So you're gonna have to take the ownership over the fact that you said yes, even though you meant no. You talk to her a little bit about what you're working on and why this is so uncomfortable for you. Um, I know you might not want to share everything and no one says you have to, but at least give her some context and explain. It sounds like you might have already, but if anybody out there is going through something similar, you know, let them know. Apologize for overstepping your own boundaries and for doing the things that you're finding hurtful. Again, let her know it's not her fault. She's doing, she was doing what she knew what she thought was best and that was and you didn't uphold your side of the bargain right you you said yes even though you meant no and so then so we've communicated then we have to take some time and really think and i'd even encourage you to in, like include her in this brainstorm but we're gonna have to brainstorm about how do we set and uphold boundaries around physical intimacy that feel good for us does that mean that we make that list like it's in the back? I talk about this in my book, Traumatized too, but in the back of the Courage to Heal workbook, I think it's like one of the very last chapters, they break um, intimacy or intimate acts into three columns. The first column being things that are definitely okay. The second column being things that might be okay. And the third column is things that are not okay, like super triggering, cannot do them, right? And so maybe we break things into that list and let the person, you know, our girlfriend or the person we're dating know that we only want to engage in these activities. Now I know you're like, that's a lot to share with someone. We've just been dating just a little bit and blah, blah, blah. Hey, if anybody's worth our time, they're going to listen and they're going to do their best to work with us. I know people will be like, but what if they go away or they weren't worth it? If someone can't hang with us and understand that we've been traumatized, therefore physical intimacy is difficult and they can't work with us, they're not worth it. I know it's hard to hear, but I'm here to tell you they're not worth it. Let's move on to someone who hears us, who works, seeks to understand our experience and wants to make sure that they are part of the healing process and not the hindering or hurting process, right? And so I think breaking them into those things and just thinking about it, take some time, you know, be honest with yourself. Um, I'm sure, you know, hugging maybe, but maybe not for everybody, but hugging or hand holding might be in a, that's for sure, okay, kind of column. Maybe even making out falls into that or getting a back rub or shoulder rub. Maybe that's okay. But then when it comes to, you know, maybe oral sex or other things like that, or if maybe for a lot of my patients, especially because I do eating disorder work a lot, they're like uh, having the lights on and being naked is super triggering, you know, like just pay attention to what works for you and what doesn't and where is that line? And then we have to communicate it. And that's why I think the brainstorming could be helpful. Um, if you want to include her, I think that could be really beneficial, but you'll get through it. 
we'll do it. We just have to be able to communicate it. And that way, when we've made that list, those three columns of things, then there's no way for her to misunderstand. And it's not about consensual sex or not. Sex might just be off the table right now. And we need to talk about that and what else could be on the table. Like some of the things that I mentioned. And yeah, I mean, if we can't communicate with someone we're having sex with, I, I know people wouldn't agree with this all the time, but I don't think we should be having sex with someone if we can't at least talk about the thing that we're doing, the sex. Do you know what I mean? We should be able to communicate at least likes and don't likes about that, about it, because otherwise, how, like, how's that supposed to work? You know, again, I know people will disagree, but I'll push back that if we're going to be doing it, we should be able to talk about it. It doesn't mean we have to be in like a committed relationship. I'm fine. I know a lot of people don't want that and that's not their preference, but that's still, we should still be able to communicate when things we, we don't like are happening or things we like are happening and all that. So, okay. Question number three. This question says, Hey Katie, can you talk about intellect intellectualizing rather than processing trauma? Oh, of course I can very, very common defense mechanism, by the way, says my therapist seems, or my therapist says that I seem to be able to talk about details of my trauma with a clinical viewpoint. Yep. I've seen this before as if I'm talking about someone else and with no difficulty at all. I do have a degree in social work. Oh, that's the trouble with us, us clinical or clinicians is that we can sometimes talk about things as if it's happening to someone else. So I know that I, I tend to think about and analyze my emotions around my trauma rather than to feel them. I don't have a problem with feeling emotions around most things. I cry every session and I'm very self-aware. I'm imagining this as a defense mechanism. Yes, you'd be correct because I'm trying to prevent myself from dissociating, which I do often. I also might, it, oh, it, it also might be a part of unhealthy attempts to minimize the validity of my experiences since I was never physically harmed. Mm -hmm. How do I make the switch so that I can heal? How do I allow myself to actually experience grief and loss around childhood, emotional neglect and abuse instead of simply acknowledging that I want to grieve? How do I feel safe in that? This is a great question. And intellectualizing is so incredibly common, especially, you know, with trauma, honestly, with anything, but trauma in particular, it triggers a lot of our defense mechanisms and intellectualization is one of those. If you look up, I think it's like the, the 10, I think it's in CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. They talk about like the 10 defense mechanisms and intellectualization is one of them. Now, the first step is honestly just noticing when we do this, because so often we won't notice a defense mechanism has come out and is present until way after the fact. And so if we're able to maybe notice and maybe just consider the last time this happened, what were the stages? How did we recognize this intellectualization creeping in? Or is it always there? Like when I know I'm going to therapy, I'm intellectualizing. When I talk with my friends about things they're going through, I intellectualize. Do we do it all the time? think about it. Be honest with yourself because it's very possible that that might be why we have our degree in social work. Just throwing that out there. But because we prefer to keep a distance or kind of a buffer in between us and experiences or us and the emotions. Um, okay. So there's that. So just seeing if you can notice when it's happening, because if we can pay attention to it and it's not constant, it's coming and going, we can kind of identify our triggers and know when to do some self-soothing. Because if you're using it specifically to stop you from dissociating, what that tells me is that you don't have enough resources 
to keep yourself grounded. And so I want you to try some random grounding techniques, things like counting the colors in a room, like how many things in the room are blue, purple, black, brown, whatever. And then also doing the, you know, the A to Z of things in the room. Or I was just talking to another member of our community and she says she does A to Z uh, dogs, like types of dogs or animals actually is what she said is animals. Um, Can we do that? Because that kind of forces us out of our, our thinking and intellectual part of our brain and into like this, you know, curious and it, it just, it keeps us grounded, keeps us from dissociating, gives us something else to focus on that is not trauma-based so that we don't continue with that overwhelm. Other things that work can be like thinking putty or coloring. I used to have a patient who would doodle or color in session. Those things can work. Um, There can be a lot of different things that we could do. And that's what I would encourage you to try because our defense mechanism is going to keep coming down. I don't know why I think a defense mechanism has like walls that we throw down, but it'll keep coming down and keep in like infecting our therapy sessions until we we have enough resources, enough other tools to calm us down and keep us safe. And I'd also encourage you maybe to to not consider feeling safe so much as feeling not fearful or not in danger. So more of a neutral because feeling safe can sometimes for many of us feel just as triggering. And so consider maybe like, could I just feel like okay with this or neutral? Can I feel not good or not bad about this? And feeling neutral ways that we can like prompt that or initiate it is through repetitive activity. Like when, when people were doing everything on zoom, it could, it was helpful for me because I could tell my patients like, Hey, could you like do a load of laundry and fold it while you talk to me? And doing that repetition can help soothe us is one of the things that I used because I was a waitress for many years. If those of you don't know, I used to work at this cute breakfast and lunch place called Jack and Jill's in Santa Monica. Uh, when I first met Sean, I was working there too. And they, I would roll silverware. It was part of, if anybody's ever been a waitress or a waiter and worked in restaurants, you know this. You like roll up silverware into the napkins and tie that little thing around them, the little sticky paper. And it was just this re- re- like completely repetitive task, took almost zero of my brain space. And I would do it with my coworkers and we'd look out the front window of the restaurant while we rolled our silverware and talk about things. And that was a very neutral thing because I didn't really have to think about it. It like opened me up to other things because I was kind of busy doing this, this neutral activity. And we find in therapy, we find that these neutral activities like folding laundry, putting the, the dishes away or putting them in the dishwasher or uh, sweeping, vacuuming. I know it's, I'm doing like lots of cleaning things, but those tend to be very repetitive. Um, those things, even coloring, doodling, those things can be very soothing to our system. And so it's like a natural way for us to calm down without having to feel safe or unsafe. It's just neutral. It's like whatever. And so I would encourage you to try to find a way for you to feel that neutrality. And yeah, that's really it is finding more tools, more resources so that the dissociating isn't so ever present and doesn't require the intellectualization. Because I think intellectualization is it serves its purpose, right? It protects us. It keeps us thinking instead of feeling. And I think that's why it's so common, especially in trauma. So it just sounds like we need a few more coping skills. I have that whole video, 25 coping skills. You can look it up on YouTube. Um, And there's tons more in the comments down below. But I think coming up with a few of those that work will be really, really life-changing. Now, there was a comment on this. This is a lot of people saying that they do this too. Oh, that was me. (laughs) I made my own note. I said a lot of people were saying that they do it too, like that they intellectualize. And then there was this comment that said, wait, full stop. We aren't supposed to do this? Question mark. 
I thought analyzing our thoughts and feelings around trauma, whether it be memories, triggers, flashbacks, etc., was what we were supposed to be doing. I thought that was processing our trauma. What's the difference then? This was great. So intellectualizing, making sense of something can be helpful and can be part of part of the process, but we're not really supposed to do that instead of feeling it. So hear me out. When we intellectualize, we aren't really experiencing the the experience or the feelings. We are uh, distancing ourselves from it in order to look at it very analytically, meaning there's no emotion in it. And when we are actually processing our trauma, the emotion needs to be in it because we need to be able to talk it through and feel that emotion until that emotion becomes completely manageable and not so charged up so that we don't dissociate or have flashbacks or have panic attacks or any of those things. And so, yes, it is helpful for us to understand and talk about things in therapy and try to make sense of what we're experiencing and going through and what happened to us and all of that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to feel it as well. And we need to have that emotional reaction in order to process it. That's why EMDR and trauma therapy doesn't work when we're dissociated because we're removed from self. We don't feel anything. Then you can't really process anything. Also, our memory is hard to tap into, which is part of what we need to do too. But that is part of processing trauma, but not all of it. Oops, sorry. I touched the bottom of the mic there. So the difference is that we can work with our therapist to try to quote unquote, make sense of our symptoms and what we're experiencing and maybe the trauma we've sustained, but we're not supposed to be disconnected from it so much so that we are like can only intellectualize and we can't act like experience it or feel it anymore. Does that make sense? I hope so. Let me know if not, but that's the difference. And I love that question. Let's move on to question number four. And that says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. It says, can you talk a little bit about building intrinsic motivation? I find it easy to fight my depressive symptoms in order to do things for others. Hmm, isn't it interesting we can do so much more for others? Like keeping spaces clean that my roommates use or cooking for my family. But since moving out on my own, I cannot seem to find any reason to put effort into things like that for myself. Cleaning my own apartment or cooking for me just feels so hard, even though I can do these things for others. This also translates into working on my hobbies or passion projects. I can't seem to motivate myself to work on them just for myself. I can only get going when I have an outside reason that I um, reason or can do it for someone else. I'm looking for some advice to help me motivate myself even when I'm by myself. Thanks. This is a great question. Now, motivations, there's a couple of things. I think, so my first thought was, I think you're drowning in your depressive symptoms and I would encourage you to potentially look into medication. If you're on medication, maybe we need a higher dose or a different one. Talk to your psychiatrist. Let them know this is happening because in my experience, I would call this breakthrough depressive symptoms, meaning I can kind of white knuckle it and get through. And if someone else is telling me that I need to do something, I'll do it. But I am not, I don't enjoy anything hello, depression. I don't want to do anything anymore. Hello, depression. And I, it feels like too much effort because I'm just so tired and overwhelmed. Hello, depression. And so I really think that we're drowning in those symptoms and that's what's robbing us of our motivation or even excitement for life, right? We just feel like everything is just too much work. 
because of our depression. And so that's my first like go-to is like, I would talk to your psychiatrist, see if we need to make a med change or get on a medication, see if the one could work for you, have all your questions. Like what are the side effects? What do I need to look out for? Um, what are warning signs? This isn't working for me. You know, ask any of the questions that's going to have sexual side effects, cause me to gain weight, you know, ask them those things. That's fair. It, it's your body and you deserve to know. So those are the first, that's like the first little bit that I would mention. And then the second is kind of, I want you to do some like internal work for me. I want you to journal about why, answer this question for me. Why are other people more important than me? What's the story that I tell myself about that? Do I tell myself that they're holding me accountable? Is it an accountability thing? Do we think they're more worthy? Is it, are we a people pleaser? Are we afraid that we're going to hurt someone's feelings or they won't like us? Is it, is it that we're really an extrovert? And so that encouragement and energy that we get from other people is like rejuvenating. What is it? Let me know. I want you to dig into it because trying to fix the problem, like at the end of the road, it doesn't help us decide, like figure out where the road started. And I'm really curious about why other people first. Now, my hypothesis is we're probably a little bit of a people pleaser. We probably struggle with boundaries and we have depression and depression makes everything harder. But if we're people pleaser and other things, you know, then we want, we wouldn't want to let anybody else down. And I have patients I even have, we have many of viewers and many people in our community who are able to go to work and get all their work done and do all the things people ask of them every day. They'll even like make dinner for their mom and go see their grandma. But then when they come home, they do nothing because they have no more energy because they spent it all doing these other things. And I just want to dig into why that's happening. What is at the core of it? Is it this people pleasing urge did is it the is it anxiety do we worry a lot about like oh somebody's not gonna like me or oh this isn't gonna go well if i don't do this who's gonna do it like what is it what's happening um because depression and anxiety are like you know second cousins they're real close and so i wonder if it's that too but anyways I'm curious. Let's be curious about that. Let's learn. Curious, not judgmental, right? And then see if we can work on some of those things, meaning like with people pleasing, are there healthy boundaries we can put in place? Or are there some things we can do to build our own confidence? Like you said, like your passion projects and working on your hobbies. Like, can we do something that we're kind of good at and work till we get better at it? Can we start complimenting ourselves and other people? Can we use bridge statements to get out of those negative thought spirals? I, I think then there's work we can do once we understand this more, but until we kind of understand why this is happening, you could even, I mean, I've had patients in the past, like always have a roommate and even have someone that holds you accountable. Like as a therapist, I've done this with patients in the past where I'm like, I'm going to check in on you and make sure that you cleaned your apartment. And I want you to send me pictures of it. And I'm going to text you on Thursday, you know? And so it's kind of like holding them accountable and then digging into journaling about like how that felt and how difficult or easy was that? And how do we feel before and after? And, you know, all of that stuff. But I really think it's the depressive symptoms. Please see a psychiatrist and maybe consider trying medication because, I feel like that's what's robbed you of your motivation. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, Hey Katie, 
What qualifies as treatment-resistant depression? Good question. I've tried multiple medications, been in therapy for several years, and I'm still not feeling consistent improvement, no matter how hard I work at it. I've been depressed for half of my life, and all I want is to feel better. I just don't know how. Any ideas? Okay. So treatment-resistant depression, I forget, I I could look this up, but again, I'll tell you why it's not important. But treatment-resistant depression, I believe, is defined as someone who has tried, I think, three or more treatments. Now, this can be talk therapy. This can be medication. Um, or maybe it's like a different type of therapy. Like maybe they've even done like ECT or electroconvulsive therapy or like EMDR. Right? We tried different modalities. We tried three different treatment ideas or tra- treatment plans, and they've all failed us. I think it's three. It might be four, but I think it's three. And the reason I say it doesn't really matter is that treatment resistant depression is a term that was kind of created through psychological research relating a lot to psych, uh, to pharmaceuticals. And I'm not here to say pharmaceuticals are bad. They save lives every day. I'm just saying that they needed this criteria in order to come up with you know, uh, medication that helps with treatment resistant depression, right? We have to know what that really means. And I think it's three or four failures on other treatments. And so anyways, I'm not saying it's not important and I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that the term itself, those failures, it doesn't really matter to me. I think anybody who struggles with depression feels like they have treatment resistant depression and they're having a tough time getting any resolution of their symptoms. And so I think that, um, that's why, you know, I think you would qualify as treatment resistant depression because you tried multiple medications, been in therapy for several years and still not feeling consistent improvement. So yes, I think that that's hopefully that explains a little bit about what it is and how it's defined. And I've seen it mainly when it comes to medications. Okay. Now the second component says I've been depressed for half of my life and all I want is to feel better. I just don't know how any ideas. The, the best thing Again, this is in my opinion, the best thing for treatment resistant depression is to shake things up because we've been trying other things and it's not working, right? We've tried the medications. We've tried this different type of therapy. We've tried this and that. And I really think we might want to try EMDR. We might want to go off our medication, obviously talk to your doctor first, but we might want to try a different type or a different combination. We might want to do the cheek swab where it tries to tell us, if you guys don't know, you can swab your cheek, send it off to a lab, and they'll tell you the medications that are most likely to work for you based on your genetic makeup. Um, those can be really, really helpful things. But when it comes to treatment-resistant depression, I think the, let me pull this up. I want to... Um, and I want to double check myself, but when it comes to treatment resistant depression, I think that, oh, okay. This is super simple. You guys, I was way off. It says treatment resistant depression or TRD typically refers to an inadequate response to at least one antidepressant trial of adequate dose and duration, just one. Holy Jesus. But anyways, I brought this up because when it comes to treatment resistant depression, I often think, or even treatment resistant anything, I'm always curious and always ask for all of the, like all files or all records from my patient. And I go through all of the medication trials to see what the dosing was and the duration. And I love that they mentioned that here because 
so often my patients don't get an adequate dose, like they're on 10 milligrams of something where their efficacy starts at like 50 milligrams. And I'm like, would we ever get up to 50? And they're like, oh no, we didn't. Well, then that wasn't an adequate trial. We actually didn't know if that medication worked. And duration, I know it sucks, but antidepressants like SSRIs, SNRIs, they can take three to six weeks sometimes to be effective. Now, newer medications are getting a little bit quicker, but it can take a little while. And did we wait? Did we give it like two months before we gave up on it? You know, because I want to make sure that we tried it out. And I know, again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, but it still helps to go through this. And I do this with my patients. And then I call their psychiatrist because I work, you know, really closely with them to let them know what we learned about. Because sometimes, and this has happened multiple times, I can think of three off the top of my head, where a patient thought that uh, Prozac, let's say, or Zoloft or um, what was the other one? Lamictal wouldn't work for them. I tried it years ago, didn't work at all. And then I get their medical file and I'm like, wait, but you were, you weren't on an adequate dose. They had you breaking a 10 and a half and then you were on it for two weeks and then that was it, you know, kind of thing. So I call, call their psychiatrist. We try it again at an adequate dose for adequate duration and boom, it works. Prozac worked wonders for my one patient who thought she would never feel resolution of her symptoms. There's also different things we could try potentially too, like vagus nerve stimulation or VNS. You can buy these little like electrical, they kind of look like a taser, but they're made for vagus nerve stimulation. You put it right on the nerve. It tells you how to do it. Talk to your doctor, you know, get these things. I think, I don't know how much they are. I want to say like two, $300, which I know is expensive, but just throwing it out as an option, but you can put it on your vagus nerve and it can stimulate that, which can improve our mood. So there's a lot of different things that we can try, things that we can do differently, new trials of certain things, a cheek swab, all those ways to help us finally get some result, like some some resolution of symptoms. Now, I never, you know, we don't know if everything's going to get to go away and we're going to feel a million times better, but I can tell you that you can and will feel better with the right treatment. And sometimes, you know, we need like group therapy. We need different types of support and there's lots of options out there. Please don't give up. It can and will get better. So I hope that those ideas, something sparks something and we can give it a try. Now, there was a comment, actually a couple comments on this. It said, Yes. And does the term treatment resistant in mental health context mean that the condition doesn't improve at all with any medications? Or can it mean that there is improvement with some medications, but the improvement is always minimal and the patient is still struggling a lot, no matter the medication that person takes? But we learned that it's only one failure, which is crazy. I can't believe it's just one failure on a medication. But so in the mental health context, it doesn't mean that there's no improvement. It means that it's not marked improvement. Now, not to get in two in the weeds on this, but when it comes to research, there's like certain percentages of changes in symptomology could be like 0.5%, but it has to be this certain amount of improvement that we're looking for. And so, yes, there can be some movement, but people are still not functioning, right? You still, what I would argue, and I could double check this, but I'm like 99% sure is that it would be it would be deemed a failure on the medication or treatment resistant if even if there was some improvement it didn't we still met the criteria for that diagnosis meaning the symptoms were still so prevalent and we were still not functioning we still felt you know all of those things i think as long as that's still going on that that would be considered treatment resistant does that make sense i hope so okay so there can be some 
improvement. It's just minimal and it doesn't actually help the patient enough. Okay. Now another another comment says, not sure if you'll answer this prior and please disregard if the comment doesn't actually pertain to the original person's question. But in addition, when does a therapist actually make that conclusion that someone is resistant to treatment? And it said, they said BLUF, which I did not know what the acronym meant. And I had to look it up. It says bottom line up front, which I really like that bluff. The bottom line up front. I have moderate MDD, can get care through the military. Mental health care is mainly about being mission capable. I know, which that I have my own issues with the military and their treatment of mental health issues. We'll move to a VA or civilian healthcare soon. And I'm nervous about diagnosis and treatment going forward, not improving in same issues as the original person asked the question and trying to keep staying afloat. Thanks for all you do, Katie. You're more than appreciated. Oh, of course, of course. Happy to help. Now, this is, I'm happy to answer this. Um, the conclusion, like I just read, and that was in a, I, you guys, I pulled up a research article. I can link it below if you want, but honestly, you can just look up treatment resistant depression in Google Scholar and it will show you what they, how they define it is just one failure. I think clinically, again, I'd say three or four. And even then, I mean, resistant to treatment can mean a lot of things. When it comes to the clinical work that I do, a person who's resistant to treatment would be someone who isn't doing their homework, isn't showing up or is canceling, um, is lying to me a lot, isn't really participating in therapy. I'm working harder than them. I would say they're resistant to care. And I would often, uh, either try to refer them out or tell them, let's take a break until you're more motivated and not make another appointment. You'd be surprised how many people are like, oh, I'll, I'll work harder. And I'm like, okay, you got two weeks and you know, we can't keep doing this. This is a waste of your time and money. And so those are the ways that I would talk about resistant to treatment. And so, but it sounds like the, the way that it's defined you know, the big wigs and the people that from the APA and stuff like that define it as one failure on a medication. So wild. So wild. Okay. Um, did I answer all the questions there? So when does a therapist actually make that conclusion? I, I mean, again, I would probably wait a couple of like probably six months before I would say that, but it sounds like it can be as quick as like three or four weeks. If you've tried the Medicaid, I guess maybe six weeks so two months max or a month and a half really. But, um, six weeks to do a full trial of a medication. If it fails then you could say it's treatment resistant, but I personally wouldn't do that. I would wait longer, like a couple more months. Now, the final question on this is I have been resistant to until my therapist sent me for ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. If you don't know, Katie, could you please describe what this therapy is and how it works? Now I have an entire video about ECT. You can just look up Katie Moore and ECT on YouTube and it will pop up. But ECT, we, we unfortunately, because back in the day, it was super barbaric and they put it in TV shows and show it being horrible. It, they may, it makes it look worse than it is. Now, ECT is not a first line treatment. This is something that I've only had, I mean, maybe in the hospital more, but I've only had two patients that I saw, like I was their therapist outpatient or in the eating disorder treatment center who had had ECT. Now both had really good responses to it. Both had intensive suicidal thoughts that just would not go away. And they were very treatment resistant. They tried like seven different trials of medications, all adequate doses and adequate duration. And so their therapist recommended ECT, their doctors okayed it and they went and did it. Now ECT it, first of all, like they put, they do put something in your mouth so that you don't bite your tongue off or grind your teeth or crack a tooth or anything like that. They usually give you like 
a kind of a mild sedative so that your body, and let me read, I want to tell you exactly, um, exactly what it, what type of, like what all the stuff that they give you. So, okay. I'm going to, this is from the Mayo Clinic, you guys. So it's not just anything, but so they, it's, it's a procedure that's done and they put electrodes on your head and they trigger brief seizures. That's kind of the goal of ECT, which I know sounds like really crazy, but it's kind of like a reset. Sometimes our body, which I was just talking about this in another, I think it was a podcast. Yeah, I think it was a podcast where psychogenic movement disorders and someone was having psychogenic seizures or what I forget what they exactly called them, but they are having these, these seizures that had no physical manifestation or physical origin, really. It was a, a mental health issue. And I talked about how it's kind of like a reset for our brain. That Sometimes these seizures are kind of like a reboot. And that's kind of what ECT leans on. So let me read. It says, um, yep, you're done under general anesthesia. That's what I I was like. I don't think I'm saying that right. So it's a procedure done under general anesthesia in small electric currents are passed through the brain, intentionally triggering a brief seizure. ECT seems to cause changes in brain chemistry that can quickly reverse symptoms of certain mental health conditions, depression and suicidal thoughts being the most common that I have seen in my practice. Now, it's not first line, like I said, it does have some uh, memory loss for a lot of people and it's not memory loss like from the past it's memory loss of the that like present like when the ect took place and during that day a lot of my patients will say that entire day of ect is a little fuzzy but it's not like it doesn't you know rob us of our memory and cause us to have amnesia or anything like that um if you heard that, we have a neighbor that really likes to drive their car very, very noisily. Um, so yeah, so that's, it's so much safer than people think the, it can still have obviously some side effects. Like if people have a seizure and they have a already a bone fracture or something, it could cause something to happen that's hurtful for them. But most commonly it's super safe. It's been very, very helpful. And it's, it actually has very few risks. It doesn't have as many side effects as a lot of, you know, medications. I wish it wasn't as stigmatized as it, you know, used to be because it used to be, like I said, a much more barbaric type of treatment, whereas now it's done in a much safer way. And yeah, so that's what ECT is. And again, I have a whole video where I talk about it. There are definitely some benefits to it. There's also some risks just like anything else. And if it's something that you're interested in, please talk to your doctor. Please ask about all potential side effects and risks and things you should consider. Um, But for those of us who are treatment resistant, it can be that life raft and it can help us. Okay, let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie. Are eating disorders ever misdiagnosed? Oh, yes, 100%. If so, what's, what is it most often misdiagnosed as? So, and there's one follow-up, I think, no, two. There's two follow-up questions after this. And the truth about eating disorders is that a lot of it has to do with weight and behaviors. Obviously, that's going to be part of the diagnostic criteria. When it comes to bulimia, for those of you who don't know, you binge, meaning we eat more than a normal person would eat in a short period of time. And I'm a huge proponent of like, if you think it's a binge, it's a binge. I'm not here to ask you if it was within an hour or half hour or how much, you know, I don't want you counting things because in my experience, counting leads to more eating disorder behavior. However, anorexia nervosa binge purge subtype is like bulimia. However, it comes with that, you know, 85% or less than of your ideal body weight. So it just really, I don't even like the numbers that they apply to. It's more just like you're underweight. 
and you're struggling to gain weight and you look at yourself and you, you know, don't see the real you, which I, all that stuff like the not be able to see your body for what it is applies to a lot of eating disorders. But when it comes to anorexia nervosa, if you gained weight in treatment, technically that would push you into the bulimia nervosa diagnosis. Now, everybody's going to have different beliefs and thoughts about this. My personal beliefs and thoughts are that I would still just define it as anorexia nervosa binge purge subtype because it was in treatment that you gained the weight, which you're supposed to be because you're healing and working on it. And I wouldn't bother changing your diagnosis because it doesn't really matter. However, if your insurance kicked something back and was like, hey, they don't meet the weight criteria of anorexia anymore, which it's so frustrating that they even have that. And if you guys don't know, it wasn't until, I think it was the DSM-4 text revision, the DSM that I had when I was in college, but they finally removed the uh, the requirement for you to lose your period in order to have an anorexia nervosa diagnosis. Like, dudes can't get eating disorders too? What? So stupid. Anyway, so they've changed things like that, and so there's, it's still improving. However, between these two diagnoses, the main difference is the weight requirement for anorexia. And I know your eating disorder just raged. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to meet that criteria. Fuck it. I don't want to have this diagnosis. I want to have that diagnosis. Why do we prefer one over the other when it comes to eating disorders? I will never know. Why are eating disorders so goddamn competitive in the wrong direction, right? Competition usually makes us want to do better. Eating disorders make us want to like hurt ourselves more. I don't understand it. And I don't really know. I just know it's very, very common. So I hope that that clears it up a little bit. And I'm sorry if that was super triggering for you because I, I always worry when I talk about the weight requirement. Okay, moving on. Next question says, I almost said comment, came out clearly the question. It says, can you be diagnosed with something like disordered eating? I feel like my eating habits haven't been healthy for a long time and I tend to always overeat on fast food. Now I cut this question down a little bit because it was pretty long, um, but I'll get through it here quickly. I always overeat on fast food, sweets, and snacks. Whenever I eat something like that, it's not like I usually eat huge amounts or get totally sick, but I do usually eat the entire package or bag until there is no food left and I'm feeling uncomfortably full or even a little sick. I've been an emotional eater for as long as I can remember, and I used to self-harm as well, but unhealthy eating is more like a chronic issue for me. For a few months, I even restricted my food more, began to obsess and count my daily steps, did too much exercise, and even started counting calories and trying to purge after overeating because I wanted to lose weight. I guess it's kind of a way of distracting myself from all the pain. 100% is a coping skill. How can I learn to not use unhealthy food or sweets as a way to cope with my emotions? Could impulse logs help with that? 100% impulse logs can help with that. Check it out. Selfinjury.com. Just search selfinjury.com and then put impulse logs and it'll come up and you can like click the link, like, you know, separate it out in the Google search, not into the top of the, uh, the tab or whatever. So you can find that because they have wonderful impulse logs. I actually even have one in my book, Traumatized. Okay. Um, I've been in therapy for two years for depression, emotional instability, and severe family issues, and it doesn't help, but we, oh, and it does help, but we haven't worked through my problems with eating. Would you say that this is disordered eating? And can you only diagnose full-blown eating disorders, or can you also diagnose someone as disordered or emotional eating? Thanks for all the, everything you do. All your videos and both podcasts have become a big resource of mine. I'm so glad. Now, you cannot diagnose disordered eating. It's not a diagnosis. It's, it's a, in my mind, it's an eating disorder. It's just not diagnosable because it doesn't quite meet their criteria. So it's like, 
the the step before an eating disorder and what you're describing to me is not a step before an eating disorder it's a full-blown eating disorder the fact that you overeat until you're uncomfortably full and you do it as a way to cope and the fact that you have gone swung back and forth like restricting binging purging all that stuff i would argue that you probably have binge eating disorder right now um yeah and that would be it and so yes i think it's diagnosable Yes, impulse logs can help you better manage. Please let your therapist know about this. And another huge resource and some, well, there's actually two books that I love, love, love. You can get them. There's a link in the description to my Amazon shop. It'd be amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. Those two books are Eating in the Light of the Moon by, I think it's Anita Johnson is her name. And then the second book is Intuitive Eating Workbook. And that's Elise. I forget the other woman's name, but anyway. Jenny? No. Anyway, those are two great books. Eating in the Light of the Moon, Intuitive Eating Workbook. Love them. Cannot recommend them enough. So I hope that that helps. Now, moving on to question number seven. It says, hi, Katie. How do you go from knowing something to wholeheartedly believing in it? Like, I know that I can probably recite what my therapist says about how it's okay to have needs and that I need to care for myself first. It's okay to take up space, etc. But emotionally, I'm not there. It's still so hard and it feels like a battle in my head each time I try to put myself first. Will it truly get easier? It's been a couple of years and sometimes I feel frustrated and I want to scream, I know, to my therapist each, each time she reminds me that I have needs and that it's okay. I think, well, knowing and feeling or knowing and believing are totally different things. And I, I really feel like instead of having these mantras because that's kind of what that is where you like tell yourself like, I have needs, it's okay, I can put myself first, I have a right to take up space, blah, 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 blah. All that stuff we've been telling ourselves, it's like that fake it till you make it. And I'm just, I just don't like that. I used to think it was beneficial. It's not, it's bullshit, it doesn't work. It's like that toxic positivity where you're like, smile, you'll feel better. No, shut up, that doesn't work. I'm not saying shut up to you, I'm saying shut up to to me, to that random voice that I just can't give you. Um. So. I have some homework for you. I want you to pay attention to the thoughts that you have, the thoughts in your head that, you know, when you're like, I'm a loser, I can't take up space and you put other people first, all this shit. I don't, shouldn't have needs, whatever comes up for you. Any of those quote unquote negative thoughts that you're having that your therapist is saying, it's okay to have them and blah, blah. We all know that. Okay. Fuck. I know it's fine. It's fine. I know. I know I have needs. What are those negative thoughts that you have? I want you to write them down. Then I want you to pick up pick the top one or two that you have the most, right? We have these common recurring thoughts, beliefs over and over and over. We tell ourselves a story over and over. What are those? Then, and here comes the work. And yes, it's tedious and yes, it's annoying, but will it help? Yes, I promise. So write those top two down and you can add to this list too. Just don't make it longer than like, mm, like five or six. It gets to be a little much. And, and that's like at a time, okay? So write down a couple of these recurring thoughts. And I want you to, number one, we're gonna check some fucking facts because we might not even have any facts, right? What are the, 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 what's the truth? What's really going on? Do, is it true that someone else in the grocery store has a right to be in an aisle and we don't? And we should say sorry for even being in that aisle. How dare us also want cereal, Whew, right? Check some of those facts, pay attention. See if that helps a little bit. And then I want you to, write down a bridge statement. Again, it's not the positive, everything's gonna be fine. I have a right to take up space. I don't, I'm not interested in that. 
that's like toxic positivity island we're just trying to get you out of dumpster fire island of shit talking yourself into this bridge of of possibility and so i want you to come up with some bridge statements to tell yourself so if one of those nasty recurring thoughts is i'm such a loser my needs aren't important i should put them first or i'm just overreacting or whatever right let's say it's that one, I'm overreacting, I'm always just too sensitive, let's say that's the thought, then I want the bridge statement to be something to the effect of, it's possible, it's possible this is just an old story I'm telling myself and it's messing me up, it's possible, that's it, I know, you're like, Katie, that's not even that positive, it's better than this shit talking, I'm not directing it towards myself, I'm not saying that I am something, I'm saying that that thought, of me, you know, being too sensitive and always too much kind of thing is maybe an old story that I keep telling myself and I don't even know if it's really true anymore, but I'm open to maybe, right? Bridge statements are maybes, possibilities. I don't know. It's all of those things. And so I want you to start working on that. And I want you to pick your top two again, and then work up to where you're doing like five, maybe six, and do this like three times a week. Spend some time. Give yourself like mm, a half hour. Don't work more than a half hour. You can set a timer on your phone and have it go off, but we'll get you to a point where you don't think these things as much anymore, and that will move us from the knowing to the believing, because it's essentially we've been telling ourselves a story for so long over and over and over and over and over again, we can pretty much say it in our sleep. We've been doing that for so long that then to be told to think or act in another way just feels fake because it is, right? We don't believe that. We haven't been telling ourselves that story long enough. And so that's why instead of just trying to jump all the way into positivity land, we need to build a bridge there. We need to start slowly. So give that a try and let me know how it goes. Okay. Moving on to question number eight. This says, hey, Katie, can you talk more about the fawn response, of course, and especially how to get rid of it? Because I feel like I do it all the time and occasions when I'm actually authentic and are really rare. Ooh, we're people pleasing too much. And I hate that about me. I feel like I'm lying to everyone around me and I feel a lot of guilt and shame because of that. But it's still like, I can't help it. And it's just an it's um, an automatic, an, I don't know how to say that word. It's just an automatism. <laughs> Probably saying that wrong. It's just an automatic response is really what I think it is. Thank you. Of course. Um, okay. So the fawn response, if any of you don't know, is so when we go into our stress response or when we're, we're traumatized, a lot of times is, is what's associated with our stress response. We, we know a lot about fight and flight. People talk about those all the time, right? We fight, we run away, we freeze, which is like dissociation panic attacks sometimes or we fawn meaning we it's almost like trauma bonding or like Stockholm syndrome where we we bond with the person doing the thing to us or try to please them to such an extent that if I just do everything right then the abuse won't happen again right so we can get caught into these cycles where we we people please as a way to protect ourselves and there's other reasons and I have entire videos about this but it can be so debilitating because we, if, especially if we've done it since we were a child, we essentially don't know how to just be ourselves. And we often have to relearn or learn for the first time 
who we are, what we like and don't like. And I know that that can be tedious and frustrating, but I like to instead try to view it through kind of like a be curious, like a child and enjoy the fact that you get to learn this about yourself. And like, we're all learning about ourselves all the time. So it's not like you're behind. Some of us just know a little bit more, but we're constantly changing and growing. So as soon as we think we know, we might not know again. So you're right with everybody else. Now, the question has more to do with not feeling like you're authentic and how do you get rid of the font response? And the, the first way to know is to notice when you're doing it and see if there are certain triggers. Now, there might not be. This might just be like our way of being because we don't know any other way to be. But start seeing if there's triggers because if we can identify some triggers, if in our case there happens to be like when people at work ask, what? oh, do you want to go out for... Mexican food after or Italian. Let's say they ask us to make a decision. We feel frozen because we don't want to upset other people. And so the trigger is making a decision that's going to affect more people than just us. That's a trigger, right? Or being asked by someone who is in a power position from us. That's a trigger, right? Start noticing what the triggers are. When we're super stressed, do we apologize a lot more than normal? Or do we find ourselves just apologizing all that's I apologize a lot. That was my problem because I just felt sorry for just being there and being me. And so I started to notice when I was apologizing. This is just another tip. And my therapist was like, notice when you want to apologize. And if you could explain to me, imagine I'm there. She's like, could you tell me what you're sorry for? And I would agree that you should be sorry for that. Then I give you full permission to say sorry. But if you don't know what you're apologizing for, then don't say it. And that man, that was hard, you guys, but super helpful. And to this day, I still do that sometimes where I'll be like, I'm, and I'll think before I say I'm sorry. And I'll be like, what am I sorry for? I'll be like, ugh, that I'm in the way. Am I in the way? I'm not in the way. Ugh, fuck, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sorry. So I just don't say anything. I can say, excuse me, or I can just say hi or nothing. Ta-da. But anyway, start paying attention to that because that can give us some insight too. Now, when it comes to being authentic and starting to kind of break out of this pattern, first is just noticing and like maybe maybe not doing the I'm sorry game or maybe, you know, recognizing your triggers and trying to find ways to calm yourself down before we act out of that fawn response. That's all helpful, but it also can help to start small. And this is something that I've worked with tons of my patients on and I've done personally is making decisions that aren't a big deal to anyone. So we start with things that only involve us because it's harder when other people are involved. We honestly can't fawn when other people aren't around, but we'll do things. We'll try to do things thinking in the future about, well, if I do this now, then are they going to be upset? Cause maybe they wanted to like, I had a patient, this is years and years ago, but she like would wait to eat even though she could have eaten and then eaten again, but she'd be like, well, I don't want to be full because if I see her and she wants to eat, then, then I won't want to eat. And then they'll hurt her. I mean, the, the thought process and the future focus of like pleasing in the future was holding her back. Obviously, we worked on that. But making small decisions about like, do I want Starbucks or do I want Pete's? I'm just talking coffee or something. Um, at the grocery store, are we able to make decisions about what we want to eat? This might all be easy for you, but I'm just I'm starting. We're going to start here because for some people, that's impossible. Then the next is making small decisions that involve one other person. Ideally, this is like a roommate or a best friend or a family member or a spouse, someone that knows us really, really well. And I want you without asking them 
to make some decisions. Like, let's go back to the Starbucks example. Let's say on Friday, you say to them, hey, would you want to go get coffee on Friday? I think it'd be nice to kind of get out of the house, go grab a coffee. And they're like, sure. And then you say, okay, cool. We're going to go to insert place, Pete's, or we have this place, Dutch Brothers here. And there's a lot of different coffee shops, but I'm just saying, pick a place and you just call it out. And then I want you to record this in your journal, call this like your assertive page or something and write down made decision about coffee shop without asking. And then I want you to, as much as you can recall their reaction, because what we're doing by doing this is we're proving to ourselves that it's okay to make decisions. It's okay to, to assert ourselves and say what we want because the reaction actually isn't bad because the reaction usually, if you, if let's say <clears throat> I was the person you're like, Hey, you want to go get coffee on Friday? I'm like, hell's yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like, hells yeah, I love coffee. And you're like, okay, cool. I'll pick you up and we'll go to Dutch Brothers. I'm like, awesome. I haven't been there before. Cool. So the, the response they were so worried about pleasing me or asking me was, cool. I haven't been there before. Excited to try it or whatever I said. I don't even remember exactly what I said. <laughs> oh, but you get what I'm saying. Write down as much to your recollection what was said and what the response was. And we're just going to slowly build these up because this will slowly prove to our brain, right? We have proved in the past that we had to people please in order to protect ourselves. And now we need to prove that it's okay to not. Does that make sense? Cool. Okay. Now, I think, was that the only... Oh, there's a comment on this. I see. Okay. Comment on this says, as an add-on, could the fawn response actually be another form of people-pleasing? Correct. Yes. I feel as though I'm honestly caught up in doing this to my own detriment, even when I have a legitimate reason for being upset with someone or for not uh, someone for not doing their job, my anxiety shoots up and I find myself apologizing for getting angry or upset and telling that person it's okay when it's not okay. I feel so hopelessly stuck in the cycle and it's even worse lately because my mother is in a rehab facility and I can only see her for 30 minutes a day. And I have such anxiety about her care and safety. And you wouldn't believe some of the things that has happened since she's been there, but I'm anxious about making the staff annoyed when they just need to do their jobs properly. Any insights you can give for navigating the situation would be greatly appreciated. Yes, it is just people pleasing, but it's like an extreme version. It's usually the difference between people pleasing and the fawn response is that fawn is born out of trauma. And so, cause we do, we fawn over people so that they don't harm us anymore. Okay. So it's, it's usually abuse, but not always. And so for this, it sounds like, it sounds like we kind of have to start small, kind of like what I was giving advice for that first part of the question is like making decisions without asking for permission, you know, for ourselves, making small ones that involve one person. And also because you have this specific instance, I want you to try not apologizing once, like mentioning something to them like, hey, did you take my mom in for this assessment? It said she's supposed to do that today. How did that go? And if they're like, oh, we haven't had a chance to do that. And you can say, well, can you call me back when you have? Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I encourage you to end the conversation when you're done asserting yourself and don't give yourself that space for like, then I'm so sorry. It's okay. I know you're doing the best you can. We don't know that they're doing the best they can. What are we apologizing for? They're the ones who have to do their job, right? We can check our facts. We can argue back. But in the moment when we have to do that, we have to hang up. And then I want you to record how you felt and what their response was. Again, 
Their response was probably, oh, we haven't done that. We'll give you a call later. Record if they called you later. And did they seem fine? Because they probably did, right? We have to slowly prove ourselves little by little that it's okay to speak up. It's okay to take up space. It's okay to have requests. It's okay to assert our needs and to get them met. But in order to prove that, we have to start building up these small examples showing just that. Does that make sense? I hope so. And also, I'm assuming that your anxiety is getting higher and your people-pleasing urges are getting higher because it's stressful having your mom there. And so having some coping skills or some ways to soothe your system before you talk to them or before you make a call could also help make that go more smoothly. Final question, question number nine, says, Hola, Katie. Hola, como estas? Says, how do your clients and patients feel about you doing YouTube videos? I've talked about this in the past, but I haven't recently, so I added it in here. Are there ever any issues that come up about that? My therapist has a YouTube channel and it's creating quite a a few issues for me. I try to talk about it, but it doesn't change my reaction to it. My therapist shares a lot of personal information about himself on his channel. Ooh, is this something that may mean I need to find someone else? Yes. So if any of you don't know, I do not see patients at this time because I'm now in Texas and I haven't gotten my Texas license. And when I moved, I had a few patients I saw and I, we were referring, I was in the process of referring people out when we decided to move. And I let my patients know ahead of time that we were looking to move. And, you know, I've been slowly whittling it down so that it wasn't abrupt or scary for anybody. And so right now I'm not seeing anybody, but for years and years and years I did. And the funny thing is maybe it was just because of YouTube not being what it is now for a long time, nobody knew and nobody really cared. And the one patient that did know, um, cause I'd sent her to my channel to watch a video. Cause it was, um, I use my videos a lot to help with the kind of what we call psychoeducation component. Like if a patient has a new diagnosis and they don't understand it, I'm like, Hey, check out my video about it you know, jot down some notes. I'm happy to answer any questions after you've watched it. And so I've done that over the years a lot. And that's been really, really helpful. And I've never had any patient really be bothered, maybe because my channel for so long is is just education-based. Like I don't, I don't share a ton of personal stuff. More recently, I guess I've shared more personal stuff than usual, but either way, and even when I do share personal things or just little anecdotes from my life, and I don't really feel like that is too much for people. But I did have one patient who got like a, had a difficult time with attachment in relation to that and found herself like wanting to know more and like not stalking me online, but like feeling that urge. And we talked a lot about it and tried to manage it. And it got to the point where I referred her out to someone different. And that wasn't, it wasn't like I referred her out. It was like her and I made a decision that it was probably best for her to find someone else since that was just so triggering. And also I got, she got in to see an attachment specialist, like someone who's like exactly what she needed. I think it was actually probably a better fit. Um, but anyway, that, that's kind of been my experience. Um, not all of them knew. I actually had a patient, this was years ago, I'd seen for maybe like a year, year and a half, and then he took a break and then he called back to make another appointment. And when he came in, he was like, so you're famous now. I saw you on YouTube when I was Googling your office info. Uh, he's like, wow, you know, but I'd been doing it when I saw it before. He just didn't know. So anyways, um, not everybody's up. I haven't had many people be bothered, like I said, but I feel like if you are bothered by the amount of personal information that's out there about him and it's kind of changing the dynamic of your therapy session, we can do one of two things. We can stop watching his stuff online and completely block him online. There's nothing wrong with that. I wouldn't take it personal. 
So we do that, or we find another therapist because we have to protect the therapeutic relationship and our time in therapy. And if we don't do that and set up that healthy boundary, it's going to bother you and we want to make sure you're okay. So that would be my advice. I, I haven't had a ton of issues that one patient, you know, but I think it honestly, I think it wasn't the best fit anyways. I think she's better off, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't upsetting. And that doesn't mean that she shouldn't have been referred out, right? She needed that referral. And I think it was, it was good for her. And so overall, most of them are fine with it and don't, don't really care about it at all, but some of them, you know, maybe don't like it. So those are my thoughts. And I hope that that's helpful. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. You can pick up a, a copy of my new book, Traumatized. It's available now. I hope it's helpful. It's got the impulse logs in there. A lot of the stuff we talked about today is actually in the book in more detail um, with more you know, helpful tools and techniques and things like that. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always